What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 69 of Dart Against Humanity. Now, typically I record this podcast at midnight sharp. This is what happened to me. I'm sitting on my uh, chair in my living room right in front of my laptop, which if you've watched any of my um, videos on uh, Instagram TV, you'll notice this is like typically where I do it from. I'm watching San Antonio Spurs versus the Dallas Mavericks. It's like 11, 15, 11.30. I'm sitting in this chair waiting for midnight. I fall asleep. I wake up in the chair. It's 2.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm like, you fucking kidding me? I fell asleep. Turns out, 3 a.m., this is when uh, the, all the Netflix series start up on Friday, and, like, you comes out. So, of course, like, binge watch you. That took its toll on me. So, I lost, like, two hours. Anyways, that's why this podcast is happening when it is. It's funny because it's only a, a, it's going to be like a two, three hour difference. And I don't even think the audience really notices that much more than I do. But I just had Christmas. Went over to my brother's house. My family came over. Did Christmas. The last time I did an episode like on a holiday, after holiday, it was the Thanksgiving episode. And it was trash. Some people tell me that they, they liked it. I just felt it wasn't great. So I decided to do a different uh, thing this week, talk about like whatever just passed and then get into like my top five Christmases so I don't have to try to figure out anything. I could just go off memory and just go. So again, I saw um, I saw the Star Wars uh, Rise of Skywalker. The difference between it and like other films that are like blockbusters and the last film of a series is when you do a film of that nature, you kind of have a formula down. You want the audience to respond to certain things, like it's wrestling. In wrestling, they have this thing they call the pop. Something happens in a wrestling match, the crowd goes crazy. Ah. So think of like um, Star not Star Wars. Think of like uh, Avengers Endgame, right? Things that happen in Endgame. Captain America's getting his shield hacked up by Thanos. And he's laying there. It was Buster Shield. And you hear, on your left, the crowd goes, oh, shit. Then the, the circles, the sling rings start opening up on the screen. And then people start popping through and the crowd goes crazy for everybody else coming on the screen. Or when Captain America got on Mjolnir and started fighting Thanos before his shield gets hacked up. How the audience went crazy for that. Uh, if you watched uh, the last um, like Hobbs and Shaw film, how certain things happen on screen and the crowd reacts. This is how you write these films, these blockbuster films. You have these scenes and things that happen 
when the little girl says, I don't know, dad, you, uh, when you saw the hot spy lady, you know, you, you did the eyebrow thing. What eyebrow thing? You know, the eyebrow thing. And then she starts doing it like the audience is laughing. You have these specific moments in a film where people are supposed to respond and supposed to get a pop from the crowd. Well, I went to see uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker and those scenes that you're supposed to get that kind of response. The audience didn't. Nothing. And it was really weird because I'm like, is, is maybe this is just a dead crowd because I'm here at the 7 a.m. screening because I didn't want to see spoilers because of Twitter. No, I talked to everybody I talked to gave me a similar response. Did the things that were like the big reveals and the things that happened, the audience didn't go crazy for, which makes me feel that somebody screwed up severely. And that's like the screenwriters or somebody Because typically with this film, when you're trying to end a trilogy, you're trying to end a series, you're trying to do a a significant amount of fan service. And you're trying to do things that like people please, because that's what J.J. Abrams does. Rian set up a whole bunch of things that people were mad about, but then J.J. is supposed to like bring it home. But then you see who the screenwriter is and the screenwriter has about two or three credits for some of the most panned and unoriginal and boring uh, films in recent history, and they happen to be DCU films, which is hilarious. When I realized, like, yo, I looked who the screenwriter was after, you know, people talking on Twitter and people complaining. So was the film bad? No. Was it mediocre compared to what the reactions should have been? Yeah. Did it leave some open-ended questions it shouldn't have? The the kind of open-ended questions it shouldn't have? Yes. Was I disappointed because they left so much on the table? Absolutely. Again, was it bad? No. Could have been better? Yes. Could have been way better based on if they did certain things? In my opinion, yes. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to go like too spoilery because it's only been out for like a week. Anyway, I was just like, all right, maybe it's, you know, it's not just me. So you're kind of waiting for more people to see it. Then we have the conversations and we realize, yo, why did this happen? Why didn't this happen? Why, why did they do that? Do that, do that, do that, do that. Again, this is what happens when you're a writer or you're just like a fan of it, some type of genre. And of course, like, and then my brother, who I usually go see these films with my younger brother, Orban, um, he's in Houston, so I can't go see these movies with him anymore. He shows up at Christmas and um, I didn't didn't expect him to be there. I come to the house. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, so I saw him and it's what we talked about it. My other brother, Jeff, he's like, eh, I don't care really about that. So, you know, we got spoilers or whatever. Let them fly. And we pretty much told them all the things that all the things we had issue with. And the thing is that we're not alone. Everybody we ran into was like a damn support group. It's like, yo, why did they do this? Why didn't they do this? And um, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, thing. Because, again, you might not be a writer. You don't really care. But there's a, a, a principle in writing 
we call it Chekhov's gun. The principle is, or the thing is that, let's say you're watching a play, right? If you're watching a play in scene one, if there's a gun and someone refers to that gun and that gun is on and that gun is on stage, let's say it's in the, like a living room and the gun's over like a fireplace and someone talks about the gun and points to the gun in scene one, before the play is over, someone should have used or shot that gun. See what I'm saying? It should have been used in the play. That's the that's the principle of Chekhov's gun. Several things happened in the film that were alluded to or brought about or or um, initiated that were never followed through. In which case, why even bring it up? And people just leave the theater like, yo, why did they do that? Like, that's bad writing. And then you go look at who the screenwriter is and what their track record is. And you're like, oh, OK, yeah. This person is notorious for doing that. It's just disappointing. So again, um, Christmas was uh, pretty good. It was pretty good. I got an Apple TV. Um, got a whole bunch of like things for the house. I got this book, um, this Marvel book from my uh, my my big sister Ronnie. What did I get? I put it on Instagram. This is me walking into my room. I don't know why I, I narrate everything. The book is called, it's huge, Year by Year, Visual History, Updated and Expanded, Marvel. It is thick. It's a $50 book, according to the, um, god damn, it's heavy as hell, too. Uh, hardcover. I thoroughly enjoy it. I've been reading it for a while. I'm still on the late 70s. Right now, it starts in like the 40s. It's back in the timely days for Marvel. Anybody who's read my um, pieces I've done, I've done extended, because again, historian, I've done extended articles about like the timely Atlas Marvel history. And that shit has like pictures and like magazine covers Issues that I can't find, even if I do archival searches. Now, uh, what I did recently is I did, of course, the piece that I talked about uh, last week. I did the uh, the Independent as Fuck 3, uh, 32, Essential Underground and Independent um, Rap Albums from 1999, did that piece. And then right afterwards, I talked about a piece I was going to, like, I was writing in the process of writing that I hadn't done yet and nobody else was going to do anyway, so I might as well talk about it. And that was um, the Akira piece. So, for those who don't know, Akira first screened on December 25th, 1989 at the Biograph Theater in Washington, D.C. in the Georgetown neighborhood. And it ran from December 25th to January 11th, um, 1990. So that's two and a half weeks. It ran for two and a half weeks straight in that theater. It also ran uh, like maybe two other places around that same time. Because at that time, they only had, I believe they only had two reels. And so they would switch them back and forth. I did a lot of research on this, man. 
And the thing is that like the article that I wrote is insane because I was realizing that all this information is out there and nobody decided to put it all together and do a big article. And also, again, the reason why is because nobody knew that December 25th, 1989 was technically the day where the screening started because nobody even did that amount of research to find out the date. And nobody knew the date that um, Streamline Pictures who uh, did the translation, the dub, and went through all this work to distribute the film, uh, released it on January, tw- February, February 12th, 1991. If you go on Wikipedia, you're not going to find that date. How did I find it? Doing research. I went through the back of every single issue of Akira between issues like 1 and 25. And I found all the information necessary. And then I found this guy who was a historian who worked for Streamline Pictures and was like one of their earliest employees. And he was uh, tasked with being this, uh, again, he was tasked with being the historian of uh, Streamline Pictures. And I did so much fucking work for that article, man. And it shows. And the funny thing is that I did a I did another article five years ago and I did a, a bunch of research, but I did nowhere near as intense re- uh, research as I did for this one due to time constraints. That's hilarious, man. So it, the article is called um, Tetsuo in Adulthood, The Influence of Akira 30 Years Later. And it's on my medium. It's going to be put in my book. My next book, because I didn't want people coming up reading it and then writing their own article and taking from me and not citing the information that I researched, you know, because what happens is when you write in this space, a lot of times people go and do their own article and they go back to articles that you wrote and they pretty much take and rather than do their own research, it's take from you because you wrote that shit on Medium, and so now they pitch that article, and they do a whole up. They do a, a similar direction, but now they can sell it to somebody and pitch it to somebody because you laid the groundwork. It's disappointing, it's frustrating, but hey, all my labor I'm going to actually benefit from because it's going to be in my book, assholes. So, um, one of the things I decided to do, I did a. A previous podcast episode back in like December 10th, 2018, and I talked about Christmas, but that was the last episode of, I think, season two, Dart Against Humanity. This is, Jesus Christ, season four. So I did it on December 10th, and that was the last episode of the year. I came back in like March 2019 or something stupid, and I never did an episode after Christmas or near Christmas. And I didn't really go into um, detail on other stuff. So I'm going to do the story of my top five Christmases. And yes, I had to write stuff down. I had to consult with my brother and go back and forth to get uh, times and shit correct. Because there's nothing weirder than me getting stuff wrong. 
So we're going to start with um, favorite Christmas memories, shit I, stuff I got um, for Christmas. My brother and I, uh, my brothers and I, I should say. There's a lot of us. Uh, Christmas 1985 was, all right, so again, I've explained it. I'm six years younger than my older brother, eight years younger than my older sister. And then there's me. I used to be the baby. Then my younger brother came three years later. So he was born December 20th, 1978. Okay. Just to give you a a frame of reference, I was born uh, August 1975. This is important for Christmas 85, right? Now, thing you need to understand is that I we're broke. We're not rich. However, if you live in a household where your mom has a job, your big sister has a job, and your big brother has a job, and you live in a rent-controlled apartment, and based on certain things at certain times in the, uh, in the late 80s going into the 90s, uh, we were in an apartment that was owned by a different company that took it over that was going to turn it into condos and was trying and did not collect rent from us because $166, technically, that was our rent-controlled, uh, bam, that was our rent, fixed at $166 from when we moved in in um, August 1975, right before I was born. So we moved into the apartment three days before I was born in August. That's the story. Rent was 166 uh, fixed at 166. There was a stretch of years where we didn't have anybody to pay the rent to because technically nobody really owned the apartment. And they especially didn't want the rent from our unit. And they didn't do they had to do a certain amount of um improvements to the unit because it was way below code, because technically it was still like the same rooming house that it was going back to the uh 1900s and it still had the old doors. It's a whole story. But anyway, so we were able to afford to do certain things and spend certain things in the household that most families with our means couldn't because we had three incomes. And then also you have to imagine that there were some times that my dad could actually, you know, help out and ship in. So that's four incomes and Christmas. All right. So just to keep that in mind and not and don't have to pay rent. Now, Christmas 1985. I remember this Christmas because it's the Christmas that my brother and I got uh, our car Voltron. So there was Voltron with the lions and then there was car Voltron. Car Voltron came in 15 different pieces, had the chest piece, the, the plane attached to the chest then you had the ship that landed on the head. You twisted it around and that was the face. Then you had the legs, which were like these weird, weird long cars. Then you had the feet, the feet, which were specific uh, short cars. You had the arms and then you had the um, ends. And then you had this big, huge sword. And we also had another big, huge robot with this big, huge plastic sword. And we were like, yo, they're just wilding out on the um, big robots. So we had our Voltron. We didn't have Lion Voltron. According to my mother, you couldn't find a Lion Voltron that was sold out in the entire city. And this is the type of uh, city where we didn't go to just one place. You would go to all the toy stores, but then you go into Chinatown. And if you couldn't, and people descended on Chinatown in the 80s and they bought up every damn robot imaginable, even the off brand ones. 
they had so many off-brand uh, Transformers and and different versions of Voltron. They had the Voltrons from Japan. They had the one that was three, three to t- turn into one. I can't remember exactly what brand of Voltron that is, but a lot of people were just like, what is this? Because it showed up in a cartoon once and it di- we didn't get the, they didn't translate the cartoon. I think it was the Gladiator Voltron. That's what it was. But um, that's the year we got the Voltron, but we got several Transformers. Uh, this is before Triple Changes that came later. So we got a gang of Transformers. We got Mask, uh, got the motorcycle, dude, orange helmet, green motorcycle. It turns into a helicopter. I got um, I got that one. My brother got another mask toy that was big. We got Mad GI Joes. Um, so we just thoroughly enjoyed that Christmas. Uh, that was Christmas 1985. Next year, Christmas 1986, same situation, ramped up even more. Um, we got again more Transformers. Uh, we got uh, my younger brother, Christmas 86, he got the Terradrome, which was huge. Now, something I need to explain to you about when you get uh, certain G.I. Joe toys, right? Someone has to build that. My big brother, Dave, God bless him, he relished, loved the possibility of getting this toy because him and his friends... uh, his boy Lucky, uh, and um, maybe some of the other cats, uh, maybe a Trent or um, Cedric. These guys were going to enjoy helping us put together <laughs> these toys, these massive uh, play sets. So you had the set, you had the instructions, which came in like this blue. A lot of people don't remember. It's like this blue uh, diagram. It looked like um schematics and it told you how to put together the uh either the vehicle or the playset or what have you step by step and it also came with hella decals or decals depending on who and so you had to place the decals exactly where they were and the thing was is sometimes you go to somebody's house and they would have the playset to be made wrong and the decals wouldn't be up because they just didn't have the pride to go through and put everything where it's supposed to go and the attention to detail. My brother was not that person and neither were we. We put the decals exactly where they wanted to go. We want them to look like they did in the um, cartoon or the comic book. So we prided ourselves on putting the decals in the right place, putting the playset together, putting everything together properly, um, having everything where it should be. We used to, uh, we used to buy the, uh, so G.I. Joe used to also have um, these supplementary things where you would have like the packs, the backpacks, the extra weapons. Our brother used to buy those too, along with everything else. Uh, occasionally we would go over our friends' houses and they would uh, paint the weapons different colors because you would get the playset or whatever and you get the um, the extra weapons and the um, and the um, and the pack. And they come in this weird wet, this weird color like you get a baby blue Uzi. So the kids would be like, oh, I don't want no damn baby blue Uzi because the Uzi is supposed to be black because Storm Shadow, not Storm Shadow, um, Snake Eyes is a black Uzi. You want a black Uzi, you know, 
You don't want a, a purple Beretta. So, you know, you paint that black or you paint it green or you paint it any color that looks more menacing. You, you don't want to have. And like, I think one of my favorite weapons that they had was um the shotgun. But the shotgun had like uh, a stick. It was uh, Lieutenant Hawk. Lieutenant Hawk had the shotgun. So if you got another shotgun, if it came in another color, like red or something, you want to paint it black, you want to paint it brown, you want to paint it green, gunmetal gray. You So people would go through and just like repaint the weapons that they got in those um supplementary packs. So there was that. Um, Christmas 1986, I just um also gave us the Night Raven. My big, my little brother played Cobra. I had GI Joe. My little brother got the Night Raven. I got um the Tomahawk helicopter, which you had to hold with two hands. It was huge. And I also got the Conquest X thirty airplane. Now I need to explain something to y'all. The Tomahawk helicopter, right? And my brother has a huge jet that also has a secondary um plane on top of it and I have this plane it looks like it has like x-wings two wings go forward two wings go back and it has these huge missiles these huge yellow missiles I gotta take these missiles off and throw them to hit something every time I use that fucking plane I'm fighting two planes so I'm fighting the night raven the big plane and I'm fighting the little plane they always shot me out the sky I have a freaking huge helicopter and now I'm up against these two planes. I have a jet and I have a smaller jet. They shoot me out the sky. I played G.I. Joe and Cobra versus my younger brother. He always had better shit than me. The Cobra didn't cross. Cobra didn't uh, have any scruples. Cobra didn't um, have any morals. So they crossed every line. They're killing everybody, destroying everything. G.I. Joe was, of course, playing like um, we're trying to save the world as opposed to murder you. I had to switch my tactics. So me and my brother were just playing G.I. Joe. Super... Um, not like they do in a cartoon. Not like we're playing G.I. Joe and Cobra in a way that would make you really disgusted and sick. Like, wow, these kids are playing some really cutthroat G.I. Joe. We're torturing, we're kidnapping Cobra and torturing them, trying to get information. We're trying to assassinate Cobra Commander. We have snipers set up all over the room. My mom will come in the room because in our room, we had a back room. So if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you had to come through our bedroom. Our bedroom was huge, and it was at the back of the house. So if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you always had to walk through our huge room, and then our, the bathroom was the last room at the end. And if and you would just come through, and you would just see us, because our entire room had been turned into like a war zone. We had nothing but G.I. Joe set up, and I'm going to get into uh, more of it. Think about it. So on one dresser, there's... Uh, all this other stuff. So the Terra Dome, right before you got to the bathroom, there was a dresser. It was my younger brother's dresser, and it was by the window. And the Terra Dome is on that. So we call that Cobra Island. Right? Then right under that is where we had like a wall where we had uh we had our TV. We had the dresser or oh, the setup, the the stand. I had my um my radio underneath that, we had this thing where you could fit more stuff. So we had all this space. So we fast forward to Christmas 1987. Christmas 1987 is when, since my brother had the Terra Dome, 1987, my brother got me the uh, 
the mobile command center. The mobile command center was huge. It was massive. This took man hours and man hours to build, put all the um, decals on. So it was myself, my big brother Dave, and um, my younger brother all helped to build this. It was a labor of love. It took a while to set up. You had to put all the all the missiles there. You had to take all the extra decals. There all these moving parts. It could open up in three different spaces. It was nuts. The mobile command center, man. Um, but also the year that the mobile command center came out was also uh the same year after Cobra uh. Um, G.I. Joe the movie and Cobra Law was in it. So there was this Cobra Law three pack. Cobra Law three pack had um, Galopulus. These are horrible figures, by the way. Galopulus, Nemesis Enforcer. They put no love in Nemesis Enforcer. If you watch the G.I. Joe the movie, um, which I actually talked about with uh, on um, it's it's like a podcast or whatever. Nemesis Enforcer in the cartoon had these huge bat wings. He was like seven feet tall and he had these claws on the end of his like on his elbows that would extend. When you saw the Nemesis Enforcer toy, it was so trash. The, 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 the things on the shoulders didn't even come out. They were like really short. He was stubby. He wasn't really tall. He didn't seem big. And he had these wings that you, because there's a hole in the back of each G.I. Joe where you could put it in the backpack, right? So they had these weird wings that you could plug into his back and they looked like trash. So Nemesis Enforcer, look it up, Google it. Nemesis Enforcer's toy was super trash. Globulus had like this weird tail that he could never really stand him up. And then you had uh, a Cobra Law guard. And if you look at the weapon in the G.I. Joe, the movie, it looks ill. It looks like a huge, massive, broad sword. The toy, the weapon that they gave him, looked really awkward. And they couldn't really hold it. Couldn't hold it even with two hands. Couldn't swing it. Nothing. So they put no love into the uh, Cobra Law 3-pack. But my brother still maintained that the Nemesis Enforcer was fucking shit up in the movie, could do it when we played. So he would just fly Nemesis Enforcer down to the center and just start tearing stuff up, ripping up the uh, the satellite uh, the satellite dish so we can't co- communicate with anybody. You're shooting uh, missiles at him. He's dodging them. He's taking missiles off the ship and going over and throwing them at stuff. So, you know, we just played G.I. Joe with Reckless Abandon. And in our room, so we have rugs, right? You have your square space area rug, your rectangular, I mean, not rectangular, your, um, you have your different rugs that are like shaped and like, you have the two long sides, but you have the two short sides. So it's not exactly a square, like you don't have, you know how what shaped rugs are. So we would have a rug in the middle of a room right before between the beds or whatever. And that would turn into technically that would be a, um, an island. On our beds, we would scrunch up the, uh, the sheets or uh, depending on what time of year, if it was like around winter, you have the comforter. So you scrunch up the comforter. So you make it craggy like rocks and shit like that. So, you know, it becomes part of like a playset. The guys are like running around and doing stuff. 
And like, and so we played G.I. Joe. We used our full imaginations. Back in the days before we had G.I. Joes, like proper G.I. Joes, we would get like hand-me-down um, Star Wars figures, but we never had the weapons. And a lot of times we didn't know exactly what the Star Wars uh, action figure was. So we gave them different names because we were using our imaginations. And our brother, to not make us feel bad about having third hand G.I. Joes that were like that were like uh, the the paint was like coming off or what have you. And we didn't know the names of these G.I. of these um Star Wars characters, because, again, you had. Original Star Wars, then you had Empire Strikes Back, and then you had um, Return of the Jedi. He gave them new names, and we came up. He came up with a game called Barbarian Days. Man, we was broke, so we came up with a game called Barbarian Days because again, um, cartoons like Thunder the Barbarian was on. And what he did was, we used to have this Max Maxwell's coffee can full of nails. And in this Maxwell, Maxwell coffee can full of nails, there were a whole bunch of rubber bands. So my brother would take rubber bands, put them across the chest of the toy, and then stick the nails in the back. And the G.I. Joe hands could hold the thin nails. So the nails became swords. And we would play Barbarian Days for years before my brother got a job, my sister got a job. We could afford... G.I. Joe toys with the with the uh, cards that you could cut out, you know, with the packaging. So we knew what everybody's name was. He gave us kind of dignity. But in the time that we didn't have, you know, toys like the other kids did because we were super broke. Um, he found a way for us to use our imaginations. And I'm a writer now. And largely it's because. Us broke kids were able to find a way to have fun and use our imaginations when we didn't have the toys or the income or the advantages that other kids in our class had. So anyways, um, the imagination that we had from when we were kids, when we were super broke, it spilled over until we actually had toys. So we appreciated them. And people used to come over our house to play G.I. Joe with us because of how we play G.I. Joe. It's like, we don't play G.I. Joe like this. This is dope. Like, y'all set up snipers. Y'all got, like, uh, y'all use actual terminology that they use. Y'all trying to kill people. You know, y'all run out of bullets. Like, this is fire. So, anyway, um. Christmas 1987 passed. Christmas 1987 was also dope because Christmas 1987 is the uh, Christmas that we got our Nintendo. I told the story on a previous podcast, the one, um, the end, the last one of um, season two, but I'll just tell it again now because I don't know how many of y'all were listeners then. My mom and my brother and my sister all coordinate all the, uh, the toys and what's under the uh, tree and what order to give them. So my mom, I think, made the mistake because what happens is in order to throw the kids off because we're smart, um, you have to do certain things to disguise what a thing is when you wrap it. Otherwise, you instantly know that's a Nintendo game. 
because of the the, uh, the shape. So again, I mentioned this. They taped two Nintendo games cartridges side by side oblong. So you look at this and you're like, what the hell could this be? This long toy, you know, this thing, this box. What box is this? Or they do them sideways. So it's you see it this way and you're like, what is this? Like, I don't know what shape this is. Anyways, my mom, I believe, made the mistake of giving me one of those thinking it's something else because, again, she didn't realize how, how it was taped. I begin opening it. I open it. And from the first, I look down and I see the back of an NES game. I see SNK and it's gray. And I read and I see Akari Warriors and I go, oh. and my mom turns and looks and she goes, oh, shit. You know, like I just fucked up. I wasn't supposed to um, give you that one this early. I was supposed to hold that off for later. And she sees my face and my younger brother looks at me. And so my brother goes, oh, he's like, hey, you know, it's out now. So he hands my younger brother one that's the similar shape. So he opens it and it's two games uh, taped together. So I had Akari Warriors and Russian Attack, N Nintendo games. And I believe his was uh, Pro Wrestling. And another game. And also there was um, Super Mario Brothers that came with the Nintendo. So then he gives us the box. We open it up and it's a Nintendo. And we were like, yo, we got a Nintendo finally. So that started our whole like Nintendo era. And of course, my big brother would buy Nintendo games. At the time, Nintendo games cost anywhere between... Uh, Thirty nine ninety nine to like forty nine ninety nine, and depending on how hot the game was during Christmas time, or if it was an import or some stupid shit, it could get up to sixty dollars. I told you all the story about the chip shortage and how like uh, uh, Link Adventure of Link, uh, Zelda two, that one was costing up to seventy five dollars at certain points, and it wasn't really even a real chip shortage. Christmas nineteen eighty nine. Um, so we're, I'm getting up there in age, me and my younger brother, Jeff, we're like not really as big on toys anymore. You know, we get like Nintendo games, we get stuff here and there, but like we want clothes cause we're going to school and like the game's different now. So we like, we want like clothes, but my mom, and again, this is the era of the Sears catalog. The Wish Book. And my mom told my sister and my brother that she wanted to get us um, Game Boys. Me and my brother. So Game Boys. So they get two Game My brother and mom get a Game Boy. My sister gets two Game Boys. And then they're like, all right, so we got the boys Game Boys. Like, I got them Game Boys. Like, we got them Game Boys. And they look around like, wait, how many Game Boys do we have? They had four Game Boys. So what ends up happening is we uh, get our boxes or whatever. It's like, hey, yeah, yeah, open this. I get a Game Boy. 
I opened up, my brother got a Game Boy, and then we got some games. There weren't a lot of games for the Game Boy back then, mind you, and Game Boy games weren't good. They just weren't that good, but we didn't care. Mm. So we're like, yo, we got Game Boys, because if you had Tetris, it was good. Um, I think we got Tennis. We got um, We got Tennis. We got baseball. Later on, uh, I think right then we got uh, Castlevania. There was the Castlevania game. And our my big sister and our big brother come out. It's like, yo, they had their own Game Boys. So I have a Game Boy. My brother has a Game Boy. My older brother has a Game Boy. My sister has a Game Boy. We all have Game Boys. Now, I've mentioned this before. The problem with the Game Boy was... The Game Boy didn't have a backlit screen. The Game Boy took hella batteries. In order to play the Game Boy, you needed a a, a microscope, like a, a something to enhance the screen. So you need a magnifying glass. Then you need the the something attached to the screen to light up the screen. Then you need like something to extend the battery charge or you need like an extended cable because you didn't want it to have to die all the time. Oh, and if you wanted to play <laughs> a Game Boy versus somebody, you had to have the Game Link cable and the Game Link cable wasn't very long. So if you were playing against somebody, you all have to be really close to each other playing. And since you weren't backlit, you both had to be standing next to each other next to a light source. So what happened was you'd be in the room, there'd be a, a light a light bulb or like a, a light stand and you take the shade off and you're both standing next to it, not moving. You can't react playing Tetris or playing whatever game it is you're playing. Later on, we both got Tecmo Bowl. So me and my brother be playing head to head Tecmo Bowl, not moving. We had Mortal Kombat on Game Boy. We'd be playing Mortal Kombat Game Boy. That sucked. Um, it, it, it was trash. And you could play Mortal Kombat on Game Boy, but you can't react. You can't talk. Tra- you could talk trash like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you can't be demonstrative. And we're black. That's really hard. We're black and Latino. Makes it extra hard. So we're just being really reserved while we're playing each other, beating, whooping somebody's ass, Game Link and Tetris. Can't move. Have to stay by the light, not backlit. It was, it was, it was pain. It was a painful, painful existence. But we had our Game Boys. Um... That was Christmas 89. Uh, Christmas 1996 is the last one. That's uh, the last one I'm going to talk about. But it's interesting because we had uh, Turbo Duo. So it's TurboGrafx-16. Then it had a CD add-on. And then they finally got smart Hudson Technologies. And they took over from NEC Technologies. who completely botched the, uh, uh, the TurboGrafx-16 and the Turbo, uh, Turbo CD. So they made it a one one unit, the Turbo um, turbo Duo. Cards go here. CDs go here. It was a beautiful design. Wish they'd come out with that first. And the price point wasn't as high. And they actually would have made a dent in the market. We had a Turbo Duo. Had it for years. But by the time I came back from Morgan State, it was clear. Everybody had Sega Saturns. People had PlayStations. People, some people brought the SNESs. We already had that. So it was like very clear that, yo, we want a PlayStation. We get a PlayStation for Christmas. Our mom goes someplace, gets it. At this time, we're like adults. Like I'm 21. My brother is, he's, he turns 18 that, at Christmas 86. I'm 21. 
Uh, my brother's uh, 18 at Christmas. So my mom isn't as good at like buying stuff and hiding it from us because we find it. So we find the PlayStation in the back of the closet while our mom's at work. And of course, like we are in the studio, we work at home, basically our home's a studio. And we're like, yo, it's a, it's a, it's a PlayStation. Yo, should we like take it out the box and like play it? All right. So my brother and I take the PlayStation out the box, set up the PlayStation, play the PlayStation. We don't have any games for it, but the game comes with, a, um, it has a demo CD. The demo CD has, um, game day 97. So it's like, it's game day 97. So we have that and, um, Tekken. And then there's this, uh, Game with like explosions with a bomb. We don't really get it. And then there's um the the similar game to the one that they had in um it was a similar game to the one that they had is a demo in um in hackers. And like hackers they had like uh an original PlayStation demo game in the arcade that they went to. So it was a game like that. It was like a weird flying game. And we weren't into it. What ended up happening is, is we just played Tekken on the demo CD all the time. So we would just play Tekken on the demo CD all the time. So finally, we put that back. We stopped playing it. Mom says, yo, uh, get this box. We already know what it is. So we open it. And we're like, yo, a PlayStation word. Thanks, Mom. Thanks. And she's just like, okay. So she goes in the room and sees us playing Tekken. And she's like, y'all really good at this. Did y'all play this in the arcade or something? We'd played Tekken to death because we'd been playing Tekken for like damn near a month before we even got it. So, you know, we had to like, we played it off like, you know, nah. But then it was like, later on, we told us like, yeah, mom, we, we found that in the back of the closet. You'd be at work, we'd be playing Tekken. So, yeah, um, those are five... Christmas memories that I had from my youth to uh, early adulthood. I had a lot of shit. I was texting my brother going back and forth like, yo, what year was that? It was like, no, the Night Raven, that was 86. I was like, yeah, it wouldn't have been 87. I got the mobile command center in 87. Yeah, because that's when um after G.I. Joe, the movie came out. So I was trying to get everything correct and in order. And then there was a bunch of stretches of years where like we're teenagers and we just want like clothes and I didn't want to break all that down. Like I've talked about the year where like the NFL uh, catalog had just come out and my sister got me the, uh, the number 22 Cowboys jersey and the number 17 Patriots jersey when the Patriots just got their new uh, Patriots, the flying Elvis logo. I was one of the first people I went to school and I had a personalized Patriots jersey with 17 because my birthday is August 17th and people are like who's 17 I was like me I'm like me Adams They're like oh okay so I was just stunting on people <sighs> so yeah man that's everything 
And then, of course, you know, this is me. I'm not really trolling people on Twitter. This is actually how I feel. But people are getting mad at me for saying what I said. I said something about how um, uh, Kanye's uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, the the album that they think that is, is actually uh, Kendrick's To Pimp a Butterfly. And there are several albums, multiple albums this decade that were made by artists. They were better than um, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. I just think that album is super overrated. I, uh, whatever. But I'm old, so what does it matter? When people are tweeting you "Okay, boomer," when you're a Gen Xer, it just makes you feel like you guys are just idiots. You don't have any taste. And also, I can't wait for the day that I'm actually that I get to the point where I have something in acquisition and I just have no reason to be on Twitter. I can't wait. Speaking into existence. Well, uh, happy holidays and happy new year and all that. One.